Hello and welcome to the Outpost Community Church Sunday podcast. My name is Greg and we are so glad you tuned in. If you'd like to hear more about the vision and mission of Outpost Community Church, you can go to our website at outpostcommunity.org and you will find it there. Otherwise, we pray that you have a wonderful week of worship and that this message would inspire you to follow Jesus with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Thank you, Regen. Thank you, uh, everyone that was a part of that uh, cardboard testimonies. What a uh, what a humble representation, holding up a cardboard sign with our dirt, <laughs> flipping it around with his goodness and what he's done. Uh, that that preached a message in and of itself to me uh, today. And it's just amazing to me how the Holy Spirit works. About two weeks ago, uh, I was commissioned to preach this week. We've got uh, Greg and Jake are both gone in Dallas this weekend. And so Greg said, we're, we're going to break away from Matthew for that week. Um, and I want you to preach any text in Scripture that the Lord has been laying on your heart. And so we're going to be in First Peter 2 and 3 today. And so if you want to turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter 2 and 3, I, I love it when you turn in your Bibles to it, turn on your phone Bibles, wherever, just get in that habit of getting into God's Word. But the, uh, the reason we're in 1 Peter 2 and 3 this morning is because in 2023, this, this is the passage of the year for me. So last year, uh, there was some, some struggle, some difficulty that we walk through within our community here at Outpost. Um, our community lost two families last year. And that was very painful. Uh, and we, we counseled our, our families that left in God's word. And where I really rested was here in First Peter 2 and 3. So this is near and dear to my heart. And here's the reality. Um, Every single person in this room this morning can resonate with this passage because every single person in this room has reached a point in your life, and you might be in it right now, where you have two simple words that come out of your mouth. I can't. I don't know what, that's, what that is in your life, but I've, I've counseled many people, and they... Typically, somebody comes to counseling or they ask questions, they need help because they've reached a point of, I can't. And this morning, we're going to look to, to God's word in 1 Peter 2 and 3 to see what do we do with the I can't. I have a friend, uh, a friend of mine in college. I was, I've told you guys before, I played college football at Michigan Tech University, and so us freshmen, we were all there in early August, um, so I'm going to date myself here, 2007. 2007, August, we were in football camp, and so the dorms are a pretty quiet place. There's, there's 35 freshmen or so on a football team, and uh, a six foot five, 270-pound lineman walked in one day to my dorm room, and I had my Bible open, and he looked at me and said, that's dumb. And if, you know, in my life up to that point, I was bigger than most people. I was not bigger than this guy. So I listened to him. Why would you read that? I said, uh, it has the words of life in it. No, it doesn't. That book's stupid. I said, well, I would challenge you to read it. He's like, Okay. I'll prove you wrong. I said, okay. So he started in Matthew. So he came into my room saying, that's dumb. I can't trust something like that. 
I called him this morning on my way in. Dave Kozak's been walking with the Lord for 16 years now because he read through the Gospels and God changed him. He took his I can't. He went to God's word. He read it and Jesus said, I can. And he was left with nothing to do but repent, put off the flesh, and turn to the spirit. And that's what we're going to see this morning in 1 Peter 2. So the thing is, Dave Kozak's source, when he, walked into my, when he walked into my dorm room, his source was himself. And many of you in this room this morning, your source may be yourself. Your, your I can't is an I can't because you're relying upon yourself. And I agree with you if your statement is I can't and your source is yourself. See, you're, you are your own cornerstone. And the thing is, as we go to God's word... There's a source in God's word. His name is Jesus Christ. And as we turn to that source, we must submit to that source, to what our source, Jesus Christ, tells us to do. And today, I can't help but feel like this is more needed than ever in our church. When we hear Christian or church, what image comes to mind as the source of the church? When people see us, you people in this room, the church, the Christian church, should they not see our source reflected through us? But is that what people see in the American church today? I feel in our, in our culture today, our churches are shifting to embrace worldly platforms as they pursue earthly comfortability within the culture. Do you agree with that? So we can either go along with that and embrace some of these cultural ideologies that are ruining some of the denominations in our country, or we can return back to the source of life and look at what his word says. I want to do the latter. So our thesis today, where this all wraps, is as we put off the flesh and submit to the Holy Spirit, we will become more like Christ. And I want to begin this morning with 1 Peter 2. If you can turn there to 1 Peter 2. We're going to be looking at the first 12 verses as we look through our first point. Our, our three points today are that point one is the house of the Lord is built on Christ and constructed with his people. Point two is that the people of Christ submit to his design within the various structures he has set up. And our final point we'll look at is that the people of Christ become like him. So let's look to God's word, 1 Peter 2, 1 through 12. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants long for the spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up in a salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Let's stop here for a minute. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. So the question is, have you? Have you tasted that the Lord is good? All right, then the rest of this sermon's worth it. If you haven't, uh, there's the door. If you don't want to taste it, but there's also, uh, we welcome you to taste it. Taste that the Lord is good. So if you do believe that the Lord is good, let's look back there at what we need to put away. Malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, slander. Probably words you recognize within the English language, but do you know what they actually mean? Sometimes we gloss over these. And so let's, I turn to a good friend of mine, Webster's Dictionary, and we've got some uh, definitions to go through. Malice is a desire to cause pain, injury, or distress to another. It's an intent to commit unlawful acts. Deceit. Deceit is to cause to accept as true or valid what is false or invalid. Hypocrisy is a feigning or a faking to be what one is not or to believe what one does not. Envy is painful or resentful awareness of an advantage enjoyed by another joined with a desire to possess the same advantage. 
Slander, the utterance of false charges or misrepresentations which defame and damage another's reputation. Do any of those five things, I feel like I saw all five of those on signs at some point, so they resonate with some of the people in here. (laughs) And if you saw when they flipped it around, what was that? What had they been doing in Regen? Putting off, right? You You can't just take these things, these five things that we just clarified and go, yeah, that's part of who I am. That's okay, I can just add Jesus to that. No, Jesus doesn't, he doesn't come in and accept your sin as just, a, it's not, a, what am I looking for? Your sin is not something that is inevitable and going to go on with you. Jesus Christ came to destroy sin. And he came to destroy your sin. Isn't that awesome? I mean, you don't have to be slave to your sin anymore. So let's put it off. And when we put off that sin, when we turn, we run from it. Remember, repentance is turning from the direction we're going, going the other way. The other way looks like being a baby again. Whatever age you are where you come to this point of repentance, even if you've been walking with the Lord for 20 years and this is the first time you've truly realized, I need to repent, you're at the same spot. You start here in 1 Peter 2, verse 1, and you turn like a newborn infant and long for the pure spiritual milk. You come to God's word. You seek God as a baby does and as it nurses on its mother. All right, let's look ahead here to verse 4. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. Let's pause there for a minute. He says here that he's laying in Zion. Zion is the scriptural, uh, it's, it's the place where the church resides, is in Zion. It's not a physical place here on earth. This is our new home, is Zion. And he is laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, Whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Do we have that photo put up on here? There's a cornerstone here. If you're not familiar with it, a cornerstone is the stone upon which the whole foundation rests. And if you go by some of the buildings here in Cody, for example, the the old Cody post office where I used to work, there's a cornerstone there, and it's dated. And this stone is where the whole structure rests. The stone's perfect. It's, it's the best stone in the entire building. And so the picture here is that Jesus Christ is that cornerstone, and upon him the church rests. And now as we look back at the, the text here, he says that the stone that the builders rejected, so you can accept that Jesus Christ is the cornerstone, and I'm looking out and seeing that many of you do. You accept Jesus as the cornerstone and you rest on him. If you reject it, Here's what his word says, it still is the cornerstone. It's not up to us to make it the cornerstone or not. It is. God has established Jesus Christ as the cornerstone for his church. And this is a truth whether we accept it or reject it. Now these texts, when he says that they were destined to disobey the word, these three things that we just read here are actually citations from the Old Testament. Isaiah 28, 16 118.22, and Isaiah, or Psalm 118.22, and Isaiah 8.14 is where these three passages come from. So we can see that long before Jesus Christ physically came, about 700 years before he physically came, this was prophesied of him, that he would be the cornerstone. So as we look back at the text, 
The next section we have is really an image of what we have become in the church. And this is so critical that we look at this foundational truth because upon it rests the rest of this sermon. So let's focus here on verses 9 through 12. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Pause for a minute. Did that sink in? It still hasn't for me, and I've been studying this for a long time. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. You know how Greg often says, what's the plan A for God's message to go forth? It's his people, right? And according to this text, can you see that? He says that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. This is God's plan A. It's you. There is no plan B. Once, just like the backside of these cardboard posters, once you were not a people. Ephesians 2 says you were dead. He says, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy but now you have received mercy. Okay, so as we look back at the imagery here, we have that we're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that we may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So what is the race? What is this uh, chosen race, the kingdom of heaven? Uh, in other passages, we see that the race is all who are called from every nation, tribe, and tongue. This is a holy race. It's not one that we physically see. This isn't about black, white, Latino, Asian. It's not a specific race. This is the people of God. We are one race in Christ. It's a chosen race. So as I was looking at the imagery there, he says in verse 10, once you were not a people, but now you are a, a people. And the people that we are now is the chosen race of Jesus Christ. So once, before I was saved, I was a white American, the son of Keith White. I had a founding date of March 15, 1989. And I have an ending date, likely before March 15, 2089. That was what I was. That was who I was. Scripture tells me that I was dead in my trespasses and sins. And so were all of you when you were born. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. But God, but God made us a people. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. So even though once I was that white American son of Keith White with that physical beginning and a physical end, now I am a child of God. I am a son of, I'm a brother with Jesus Christ, is what scripture says. He's my everlasting father according to Isaiah 9.6. I am in the family of God, and that's where I belong. That is the chosen race that I am now a part of. Once you had not received mercy, what is mercy? Mercy implies compassion that forbears punishing even when justice demands it. Justice demanded that I be punished. My sin had eternally separated me from God, but then I received mercy. Mercy is only possible to me because justice was served on the cross. So I am now free. I will not face punishment only because God has poured it out on his son Jesus Christ on the cross. So I have received mercy and so have you if you are found in Christ Jesus today. So beloved, I love this. We, we turn from these first 10 verses establishing who you are, what your foundation is, who you are in Christ Jesus. So beloved, we plead with you urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh. The five things we read about here at the start, the passions of the flesh, they wage war against your soul. 
Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. I love this term. We look forward to the day of visitation for the lost around us, don't we? We live right now as if the Lord will visit them. And when we keep that focus in mind, it'll really help as we go into these next portions because there's some injustice we're going to have to deal with. And as long as we look at this day of visitation, we trust the Lord to visit them when it's time for him to visit them. You all have a day of visitation if you're found in Jesus Christ. Praise God for that. You're probably not here if it wasn't for another believer choosing to share the gospel with you and maybe going through some rough trials as they did that with you because they were awaiting the day of visitation for you. So as we look ahead, we're going to dive into the second point here because while we are being transformed by Christ, we still must live among neighbors in this world. So let's look back to the text here to see how Jesus, through his word, commands us to live within society and in our homes. As we get into point number two, the people of Christ submit to his design. So the very first two words indicate submission here. Be subject, for the Lord's sake, to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil And to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. I, I love that verse. It's like, Every guy in here needs that on their, on their office wall. Like, yes, honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Like, it's such a good ending there. So I had to get that off my chest. Thank you for enduring that. <laughs> That's, I mean, this is a bit of a, a rare take in our culture here in Cody. We have a specific form of government that we like better than another form of government. And I would say right now, the majority of people that I'm preaching to don't exactly love our current form of government. And they're hoping here in 2024 to change the current form of government to the form of government that they would prefer. How are you living within that feeling? Are you complaining? Slandering your current president? How are you talking with your friends about it? Do you submit to the fact that God knew this was going to happen? That God ordained for it to happen? Even if you don't believe in the vote count of 2020? Does it matter? It is what it is. This is what God has given us. And we're told here to honor the position now that is in place. And I would say as I looked into the word for honor, it is a respect that we put upon that position. And as we respect things as believers, we pray, don't we? So in showing honor and showing respect, we should be praying for our president. We should be praying for our local elected officials. We should be honoring our local law enforcement. Yes, we should be honoring speed limits, respecting local law enforcement, and pray for your leaders. That's the will of God. That's what he commands us to do. And remember, we're built upon the cornerstone. The things we're reading here are not optional, church. If you are built on Christ as your cornerstone, please read this with a heart of submission, of subjection. If you can't come to this with a heart of subjection, what you're essentially doing is making your own cornerstone. And you are the cornerstone of your house. If, you're, if you begin here in verse 13 where it says be subject, all the way through uh, chapter 3, verse 12, which is where we're going to end today, 
and you pick and you choose. Well, I'll do this, but I won't do this. Every time you say, I won't do this, I can't. You're establishing your own cornerstone. And that cornerstone is built on sand. It will wash away with you when your expiration date comes. So I just want to encourage you, as I've had to submit myself to this word, please submit yourself to the word of God as we continue going through this. So within government, we see how we're supposed to behave. Now let's look a little bit closer, because government can feel a little bit macro. Like, okay, sure, I can pray for the president. But my boss? Do you know where I work? Do you know what I deal with? So let's look at employees and employers in verse 18. He says, servants. In the case of our culture today, this is employees we're speaking to. Be subject to your masters or employers with all respect. Not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. Here's where this text gets really uncomfortable, guys. Also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? I mean, good job, you stole. Now you have to endure seven years in prison. Like, what, what credit do you have from that endurance? You know what you did, and you know that you earned your punishment. But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. This, friends, is what separates followers of Jesus Christ from the lost. How you respond to injustice in your life. I'm just, as I look around here, I see many of you that I know have suffered some great injustices. So I know this is, this is going to hit home. It might cause some tears. It, it might bring a lot of pain. Because you not only hear unjust, and you don't have to look around to see, like, does anyone here have anything unjust going on in their life? You feel it. Here's the, here's the key where everything flips in verse 21. For to this, you have been called. Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. So at work, we are to be subject to our employers with all respect, not only the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. As I was thinking of examples in that, um, we live in a free society, so you are free to change jobs. And this message isn't intended to say, nope, you're chained to your job. Don't ever leave. <laughs> but it is, you know, there are some basic situations I'm sure many of you are dealing with right now. Maybe. I, I know that we have a lot of construction workers in Cody, Wyoming. And it's possible you're making 20 bucks an hour right now. And a guy working alongside you is making 24 bucks an hour. And you're putting in two times the work he is. And you know it. How does that feel? Is that just? I mean, on its face, church, is that just? No. If you're accomplishing two times, shouldn't you be making $48 an hour? Or shouldn't he be making $10 an hour? What does that do in your heart? I mean, this, this is the kind of thing we're dealing with in our modern day is how do you deal with that? That is an injustice. That probably brings about a whole lot of feelings, a whole lot of thoughts that go through your mind at home. But are you submitting that to the Lord, saying he sees, and not going back the next day and deciding, well, if this is what it takes to make 24 bucks an hour, I'm going to cut my work in half. You know, the believer is going to submit that kind of thing to the Lord and say, he sees. He'll honor, and you endure. I know that's not a huge thing, but it's probably the most relatable thing for us in this country is that kind of a situation. But this passage is really critical as we move into the next one. But before we get into the next one, we're given our example here in 21b through 25. And upon these 
four and a half verses hinge this whole text. It says, Christ also suffered for you. Here's our great example, brothers and sisters. He's leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, what is reviled? It's to subject to verbal abuse or to use abusive language. When Jesus was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, suffer is to endure death, pain, or distress, sustain loss or damage, or be subject to disability or handicap. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep. Once you were not a people, now you are a people. Once you hadn't received mercy, now you have received mercy. You were straying like lost sheep but now have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Church, if this doesn't do something in your heart, this whole message doesn't matter. Jesus is the foundation. He is, the fo- he is what has saved you. And we look at his example. The sinless son of God chose to be reviled, chose to suffer, and did not turn and sin in return. The sinless son of God. So... How does that apply in our homes? Many married couples in here. Many unmarried, and I want to encourage you unmarried to listen. uh, Because you might realize you want to stay unmarried. But if you don't, if you really want to be married, listen as we talk about what the Lord commands our wives and commands our husbands Because not only do you need to submit to that if you choose to enter into God's union of marriage. And what is God's union of marriage? It is the union of a man and a woman. And it will never be different. That is what marriage is. And if you want to get into this union, here's what he says to you. Likewise. Critical word. (laughs) You're going, why? Look at what we just read. We read about servants being subject to their masters as Christ was subject to his father. And then as soon as we get into the text talking to wives and husbands, he says, likewise. So we're not moving on. This isn't a new topic. It is within the same realm as what we've been reading. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands so that even if some do not obey the word, They may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. When they see your respectful and pure conduct, do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight, is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. So wives in the room, and when I say wives in the room, I didn't say husbands listen to this for your wives in the room. That's one of the things that often happens as we go through these portions. The people listening most right now are husbands. Yes! This is it! Did you hear that? As you're driving home, you missed it. (laughs) You completely missed it if that's how you leave this place. We're going to get to husbands. Trust me, you don't want your wives doing that to you as you leave this place. 
But we're, we're looking at wives here, and when, you, when you're given a command that specifically addresses you, we've been learning through this whole text, we submit to that. And so wives, if you've entered into a union with a husband, you need to be subject to your own husbands. So you take on a position of submission towards your husband. That's the will of God. Your adorning should be internal. Does that mean you should <laughs> just give up? <laughs> uh, I don't know where to go right now. When I read, let your adorning, what I read is, what do people know you by? So there, there are wives, especially in the South, referred to as trophy wives. What does that indicate? Why is the plastic surgery market so successful? They have found their value. They have found their worth in their external adorning. And that's what Peter is seeking to correct here in chapter 3. Your worth is not in how you look. Your worth is in what Jesus Christ has done inside of you. And when Jesus is doing a work inside of you, it's going to show up without a word by your conduct, wives. It will be respectful and pure. It will be gentle and quiet from your spirit. And one of the critical things here is there's no clause. We're going to deal with this with husbands too. Remember, this says likewise. So when we go back to what it's like, he says, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust, back in verse 18. So likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, not only to the good ones, but also to the ones that aren't obeying the word. This is where many wives reach their I can't moment. I want to be careful here. Because we've already said we're subject to our government institutions. And I don't know what's going on in your homes. And there are some things going on that do need intervention. They need governmental intervention. They need church intervention. If there are women being abused in this church physically. Don't just think that I'm preaching here. Take it. That's not in line with God's word. We need to deal with it. We need to report it. We need to intervene. We need to help you get help. The Lord has given you a husband. And you may not love him very much. <laughs> you may love him a lot. That's not the point here. When you've signed up, when you've signed up for the institution of marriage that God has given you, it is a till death do us part union. And while you work through some very difficult things in that, you always return to his word. You return to the master of your soul, Jesus Christ. You find your strength in him, wives. And it comes out in strength when you when you walk with respectful and pure conduct, when you walk with a quiet and gentle spirit, even in spite of what you're dealing with with your husband at home, the strength of Christ leads you to walk this way. And I will tell you, as a husband who has not always loved my wife well, who got into marriage thinking that my wife was there to serve me, who looked at marriage as like the greatest thing in the world because I was going to get everything I wanted, that was me. My wife's respectful and pure conduct, my wife's willingness to be authentic with the Lord and with me, and the way that she showed her gentle and quiet spirit broke me. Wives, this is how you break your husbands. It is not 
by reviling them or threatening them. That pushes us the other way. You can go back to Genesis 3 to learn more about that. There was a curse that happened. And in that curse, what happened with our unions was he said that the wives would now desire their husband. Your desire shouldn't be for your husband. It should be for the Lord. But your desire is now misplaced through the curse in your husband. And as a result, when he's not up to the standard that you thought you married, you are going to get him there. That's what happened with the curse. Okay, and husbands, what happened with the curse for you is you didn't do your role of submitting to God's word saying, you should not take of this fruit and eat it. You let your wife do it. You sat back and watched her, and then she's like, you take it and eat it. And you're like, well, she did it, and she's not dead. Okay. That's, the sin, the original sin of man was apathy. The original sin of the husband was not taking his role seriously given to him by God, and he ate of that fruit. And so what happens in our homes often is men sit back, apathetic, and then when their wives nag and nag and nag and revile and threaten, they finally snap. And it says back in Genesis 3 that he shall rule over you. Any of you experience this conflict? It's called the nasty cycle. A wife wants to make her husband something that he is not. The husband gets sick of it and yells at her. And you've got this nasty cycle back and forth. And we see here the commands given to us. So we began there with wives. And I get this, this verse 6 here is Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. It's going to be interesting if all of you wives start calling your husbands Lord. This will be a very interesting place. Um, we'll see. I, that doesn't happen in my home. Um, I'm okay with that. <laughs> I love my wife. She's great. <laughs> I don't know what I'd do if she started, you know, welcome home, Lord. <laughs> yeah, please don't go there, Priscilla, if you're in here. <laughs> but maybe, maybe that's what's necessary in your home. It's necessary in your heart if you're not at a place there of being in subjection to your own husband. And maybe that's hard to hear, but, I mean, this is what God commands us, uh, wives, in his word. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Does that just throw anybody else off? Like, oh, that's really scary. I'm not scared. Like, it was interesting. Like, what does that mean? And so I, I looked into it, and there's a message preached by John Piper. I highly encourage uh, you listening to it if this is a topic that you feel like you need a deeper dive in. Um, this portrait of Christian womanhood, Piper says, is marked first by hope in God. And then what grows out of that hope, so hope in Jesus Christ is what leads you to this position of respectful and pure conduct, quiet spirit, gentle spirit. Your hope in God leads you to that place. And then what grows out of that hope is fearlessness. She does not fear the future. She laughs at the future. That's straight out of the Old Testament. The presence of hope in the invincible sovereignty of God drives out fear. And as I've talked with my wife, I understand women are dealing with a lot more fear than men are. And so I don't, I don't fully understand this, ladies, but my wife talks about how walking down the street is a different experience for her than it is for me. There's just this sixth sense that you always carry with you. And so... Fear probably resonates a little bit more uh, with, our, with our ladies than it does with our men. If more of you are like my wife, maybe you're not. But the more women I've talked to, this is a consistent thing. But your hope in the invincible sovereignty of God drives out fear. Or to say it more carefully and realistically, the daughters of Sarah, and Sarah is the wife of Abraham in the Old Testament. Abraham is the father of faith, um, so that's who we're talking about when we talk about Sarah. The daughters of Sarah fight the anxiety that rises in their hearts. They wage war on fear. And they defeat it with hope in the promises of God. Mature Christian women know that following Christ will mean suffering. Sometimes within your own home. 
but they believe the promises like 1 Peter 3, 14. But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. And 1 Peter 4, 19. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. That is what Christian women do. They entrust their souls to a faithful creator. They hope in God, and they triumph over fear. Husbands. Again, that word likewise is here. And that likewise connects us again to the end of chapter 2. So likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way. I could stop there. And I will for a minute. To understand is to be thoroughly familiar with the character and propensities of your wife. I don't know how many circles of new husbands I have sat in where they come to the horrific realization they have no clue what is driving women. I don't know, man. It's usually what I hear from the other guys. Dude, happy wife, happy life. And the worst thing is, that's the advice I often get from 70-year-old men who have been married for 45 years. They still haven't learned it. That's not what God's word calls us to, husbands. He doesn't call us to a, she's going to do what she's going to do. I'll let her have her me time. I'll have my me time. That's not at all what we're called to do. We're called to live with our wives in an understanding way. How can you be thoroughly familiar with the character and propensities of your wives, husbands, if you don't talk to them? If you don't spend time with them, ask them how they're doing. Listen when they answer and go on for much longer than you hoped they would. This is so key. I'm convinced this is so key to seeing better marriages in our church. Husbands taking time to sit with their wives and talk to them and get to know them. It sounds so basic. Some of you single people are like, are you kidding me? But I don't think there's a single married person in here that says, are you kidding me? Am I right? This isn't something that men do naturally. If it was, it wouldn't be commanded. That's the thing, is, is all of these things in a vacuum, do they feel easy? Yes. All of you men who are not married, you're like, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as a weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Got it. It doesn't look that hard. And in a vacuum, it's not hard. The problem is that when you get a wife, you're not in a vacuum anymore. All of a sudden, it's hard. Because you're not probably getting what you want. And so when you're not getting what you want, you're like, well, she doesn't even understand me. Why am I going to take time to understand her? Because God's word tells you to. That's it. If you haven't gotten it, that's the gist of this message this morning. God's word tells us things and we submit to it. Even if we can't stand our wives in the moment. That doesn't change the fact that we're commanded to live with her in an understanding way. Showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel. Since they are heirs with you of the grace of life so that your prayers may not be hindered. This is serious, men. Our number one core value here at Outpost is to devote daily to the Lord. And part of that is a life of consistent prayer. When you choose to just ignore your wife, when you say, I give up on understanding her. I don't feel like showing her honor. Your prayers are hindered. <laughs> you don't have a close walk with the Lord when your prayers are hindered. So husbands, if you have signed up 
to be married. Live with your wives in an understanding way. Show honor. Honor is respect and esteem shown to another. Wait, isn't respect a woman's job? No, it's, it's actually part of honor, is respect and esteem shown to another. How many of you husbands are showing respect and esteem to your wife? How many of you are lifting up your wife uh, when you talk to your friends? When you talk to your children about their mother, how are you honoring her and how you speak to them? It says, as the weaker vessel... I, I don't think that it's rocket science to look around and see that men are bigger. So simply put a vessel. <laughs> a vessel is a container for holding something. I'm looking around, around at a lot of containers for holding something. This holds us, our skin, our, our skeletal structures. We are a vessel. I don't know why I have to say it like that. That's my Greg side when I turn into like Southern Baptist vessel. I don't know. There's this uh, comedian who always says it like that, and I just can't help myself. It's a container for holding something, a person into whom some quality is infused. So, husbands, this isn't to be looked at and scorned. My wife's a weaker vessel. Thank God that's how he made us. And you are to show her honor due to her position as not being made as strong or as big in some cases as you. The reason why is because wives, women, you have 100% equal value with the men in this room before God. You are heirs with us of the grace of life. Just because the position within marriage is a wife is subject to her husband, the position before God is not so where men are esteemed as higher value than women. You are heirs with us, equal in standing before the Lord. And the blood of Jesus Christ shed on your behalf is every bit as effective as it is for your husbands. Finally, our point three. As we submit to the Lord's structures in spite of injustices done by people within them, we become like him. Point three, the people of Christ become like him. First Peter 3, 8, and 12, 8 through 12 is where we end this morning. Finally, all of you. Let's contrast this for a minute. So if you're flipping back and forth like me, we're going from 1 Peter 2, 1 to 1 Peter 3, 8. Finally, all of you, have unity of mind instead of malice. Have sympathy instead of deceit. Brotherly love in place of hypocrisy. A tender heart in place of envy. And a humble mind in place of slander. Isn't it awesome what Jesus Christ does? You now, as you submit yourself to the things we just read, and were some of them hard? Do they hit some of your circumstances right now in a seemingly impossible way? I would believe the answer to that is yes, based on many of the conversations I've had. So you've reached a point where you feel, I can't. But if you submit to the Lord, submit to his commands, what it produces in you is unity of mind with your fellow brothers and sisters who are going through the same stuff. Did any of you resonate with those posters? <laughs> Did you feel that yourself? How many guys in here saw the word pornography up here? And you're, you know your secret battle with it right now. You can have unity of mind with these other men that have flipped it. And seeing victory over it in Jesus Christ. And that's just one of 20, 30 examples that were put up. Jesus Christ heals everything by his wounds. Submit to him and have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. 
Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling. This is where we get out of the vacuum, guys. People are going to come after you. The devil is going to come after you in whatever way is probably going to attack the thing that is hardest for you. When that comes, do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling because you have Christ. And as we look back at chapter 2, he didn't revile in return and he didn't threaten. Instead, on the contrary, bless. Bless those who are reviling you. Bless those who are paying evil to you. For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. For, and this comes from Psalm chapter 34, 12 through 16. Whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. We're all like my friend Dave. We have all reached a point where we say, I can't. Or we say, that's dumb. You might be there right now. As we read in those last four and a half verses of chapter 2 of 1 Peter this morning, Jesus Christ can. He has. And he will. As you submit your I can'ts, as you submit your that's dumbs to him, he will give you victory. You can have all the confidence in the world in the source of your spiritual life, in the cornerstone as we looked at earlier, upon which the house of the Lord is built. All authority on heaven and earth has been given to the Son, Jesus Christ. Let's submit to him this morning. Even though putting off our flesh is hard, submitting to Christ's design in our life is humbling, and becoming more like him means suffering potentially to the point of death. If you've tasted that the Lord is good, you know it's worth it. Let's pray. Father, your word preaches an incredible message, and it, it humbles us when we sit beneath it. And I pray for my brothers and sisters today that they will sit beneath your word, and Lord, that they'll cry out to you. I know some have recently been struggling with depression, recovery from divorce pain of losing loved ones the pain of not being able to get pregnant with loved ones Lord pain surrounds us it drags us down to the point where we just cry out I can't anymore and that's where we find you Pray that we won't be too proud to get to I can't. And that we won't be too proud to turn to the one who can. Holy Spirit, please convict hearts in our congregation. As people are hardening their hearts to your word, I pray that you'll soften. Lord, help us all be held in subjection at the foot of the cross to see the work that you've done, Jesus Christ being perfect, living that perfect life, Lord. If anyone should have reviled, it was you. If anyone should have looked and said, get away from me, it was you. But you took this broken, wretched bride that's all sitting in this congregation today. You took this broken, wretched bride and said, I'm going to make it mine. We stand on the cornerstone of you, Jesus. Please make us bricks, living stones. 
please make us that plan A. Let us be a light to the people in Cody, Wyoming. Let us go out and shine brightly and show people that in spite of whatever injustice that may come our way, we have a deep confidence, a deep hope in our Savior. And that hope is unrelenting. That hope will carry us all the way through. I pray, Lord, if anyone doesn't have that this morning, that you will come over to them, break them this morning, and save their souls. In Jesus' name.